This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Bob Dylan once sang, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. And gee whiz, if that ain't ever the tone of the times these days, that sense of encroaching darkness and regret and a growing nostalgia for all that's been lost. And guiding us through that not-quite-dark-but-sure-as-shit-not-light-at-all tunnel is a guest whose words are like a lantern in the fog, here to see us to shore and safety. Regarding Inherent Vice, today's guest had this to say upon its release in 2014. Paul Thomas Anderson's maybe second, arguably third, Thomas Pynchon adaptation after There Will Be Blood and The Master, Inherent Vice is the first official one, as well as the truest. It provides a Rosetta Stone for Anderson's career to this point, with Pynchon's work serving as a template for an artist crossing genres while holding true to a certain standard of intellectual rigor, a certain florid prosody, a specific interest in telling true the story of whatever the times may be. Inherent Vice also offers a framework for Anderson's intimidating film craft, his particular way of marrying image with sound, and the extraordinary shots, unbroken, literally or rhythmically, that have made his movies as much pop poetry and music as narrative. Consider the reunion sequence in Punch Drunk Love that finds Shelley Duvall singing Harry Nilsson on the soundtrack while Anderson rocks the camera like a baby in a cradle, or the wordless opening sequence of There Will Be Blood with Johnny Greenwood's terrifying Kubrickian Dawn of Man overture rattling the soundscape, or the gravity's rainbow opening of The Master as our hero, on a boat, sways in another swaddle far above his maddening crowd. Remarkable stuff. Cinema as high art, doing things that only cinema can do. And it's writing like that, and critical lyrical, insightful thinking like that that makes today's guest one of the absolute best writers in the game and an absolute privilege to talk to. A man with bylines at the New York Times, Film Freak Central, LA Weekly, Decider, and Vulture, the man who literally wrote the book on Steve D. Jarnett's film Miracle Mile and the upcoming book on the work of Godman director Walter Hill. Walter Chaw, welcome to Increment Vice. Hey, the honor is completely mine, Travis. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very uh, humbled that you would ask me on to talk about this movie in particular. Well, thank you for saying that. And now please keep talking while I breathe into a paper bag and get some oxygen back after that, <laughs> that, that wonderfully long graph that sums up in, in, in one paragraph, an entire film that is taking me some 50 episodes to do the same with. So oh my gosh, you, yeah. you vamp while I, 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 I uh, suck on some oxygen here. Yeah, man. I mean, it was all one <laughs> sentence too is the problem with my writing. I, think. <laughs> I, will, I will say I didn't realize that until I started uh, reading and I'm like, where the hell is the period? Well, that's a when, do I, when, do I get, when do I get a breath? 
Lots of semicolons, man. Just be just be glad that you're not Bill Chambers, my, my brilliant and long-suffering editor. He's the, uh, you know, he's been the uh, sad recipient, I think, of, of, of a couple million words over the last 20 years for me. And so, you know, I, I, I sound much stupider in person. Uh, it's Bill that, that polishes all up for me. But um, thanks oh. for that introduction, Travis. I could never probably live up to that. But uh, yeah, I, it's, uh, it, it's a movie that really... I, I thought it was glorious from the first, you know, and I've seen it several times since then. I've seen it on 35 and I've seen it, you know, when, when I was running movie theaters, I saw it several times there. We were the only theater for a while uh, outside of California that was showing it on 35 millimeters. So um, it was really wonderful to be able to see it in that format for a while. Um, I'm really just, doing the Lord's work out there. Well, it's just a glorious film and, you know, yeah. movie of all movies that really deserves it. The, you know, you, can talk, you can take so many angles at it, but it's really a beautiful looking movie. Uh, it's the opening sequences, the everything's beautiful. You know, I, I agree. And we were talking about that on the last episode with the boys from the Pure Cinema podcast. I was talking to Elric Kane, who's yet to see it on 35 on the big screen. And I was really pushing for that to happen. You know, he, he does a podcast for the New Beverly Cinema. That, that opportunity will come for him. And I, I hope he takes it up because. I, I agree. I think it is a visually stunning film, even though, you know, you and I were talking before the show about the works of Walter Hill and how sometimes people focus almost exclusively on the the narrative poetry of or the, the, the poetry of his prose and his screenwriting, and they miss kind of the visual poetry of his work. And I feel like Inherent Vice is kind of the middle child in that regard as well, in terms of Anderson's oeuvre, which is a fun word to say. Mm -hmm. uh, and that it's a film that I think often gets remembered for a lot of static shots of people sitting in breakfast nooks against off-white cream walls and talking. And they miss what a staggeringly gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous film this is, whether it's Doc watching Shasta drive off into the off-focus night and he just starts walking around Gordita Beach beneath the haze of like that glorious neon title card font mm. or driving in the fog at the end or standing beneath the the tower of the golden thing or even something as simple as that very the very robbie mueller-esque drive through the night that he uh the doc and bigfoot take near the end of the film when they're escaping adrian prussia there's there's something about seeing this film in specific on a gigantic screen projected you know 24 frames per second that just it's just it's absolute visual poetry it's so gorgeous yeah. Yeah, and the, 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 there's a really extraordinary warmth, I think, and nostalgia uh, about it. There's a term that's usually attached to Longfellow's poetry, I think, uh, called acedia. I, I, I think it's acedia. It, it's just this idea of sort of this grand romantic decay. And, and there's a sense in the film that it, it feels lurid. You know, there's something lush and sultry about it's it and it, it, it feels like memories of the 70s in a, in a way just because i think a lot of the movies from that era feel like that but there's a there's there's a way that anderson seems to impart in this film especially a sense of real melancholy to the way that the film is shot um and, and some of its nostalgia for various genres that we recognize you know the film noirs the, the, the thrillers the things that you know that we see but also you know little vi little visual jokes i think like the last supper sequence <laughs> where he walks into the party and you yeah. know there there's the the growlers is that you know sort of posed as, yeah. as, as the disciples and 
you know, to Koi. And, and there's the, there's a, but, but what it does to us psychologically, I think, as we're watching it, is it pings off of all of these scenes. It's like, like Ch Children of Men, the uh, great Quorum film, where, you know, every single shot in that movie is, is sort of uh, uh, mimicking a piece of modern art, a highly recognizable piece of modern art. Mm -hmm. so that as you're watching it, you get this real sense of famili familiarity that, that, that feeds the sense of loss in it. You say, I recognize this place that's gone now. These are cities of our mind that are no longer populated. Just like, you know, the, the older we get, and I'm much older than you, Travis, I think the older you get, the bigger that city is of places that don't exist anymore. You know, the video shop that I used to go to when I was a kid, the, you know, even the elementary school, you know, I think was knocked down. Yeah, the, the, these are the places that are still alive in my head. My city there grows larger and inherent vice seems somehow to ping off of that, the feeling of visiting those, that sort of, those sort of velvet places um, that, that aren't actually there anymore. Or maybe, indeed, maybe we're never there. There's that, is it Scottish or Welsh term, uh, Yairaith, which talks about memory for a place that never existed. And, and, and inherent vice, I think, is really that thing. And and I love, you know, and I just keep rambling, you gotta jump in at some point, but you know, I, I love I told how... you I needed my oxygen, man. And yeah. you're, oh, you're running with it, go. I don't. You know what, I'm getting, you know, I was telling you, I was bummed out because of how excited, how exciting the process was for you to put together your book on Walter Hill. And I was telling you, you know, I'm just, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I wanted to be in your shoes. It's so great. Uh, at this point, you should be hosting this show. You want, I think we got to flip this and I'll be the guest. Like you, oh, should, be, you no, should be narrating stop. this sucker. No, 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 nobody would listen to more than 30 minutes of this. I promise you. Get but, the um, out of here. Yeah, the, 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 I love that it said in 1970, because I think it really captures the sort of idea as well about how, Everything about progressivism and to, to this day, I think, was mortally crippled by those last couple of years in the 1960s, sure. um, in, in which all of the progressive leaders essentially were assassinated. And that sort of paranoia and that sadness, real sadness, um, permeates, you know, in their bodies. And, and, and as it does all things, I think. Um, and, and, and I think that there's this sense that Doc is this representative of, or, 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 or this emissary from a place of hope and his reality now is like he you know he's just walking down the street and lying there and policemen are walking around him you know the stormtrooper the so this whole electric glide and blue you know all that all those movies from this paranoid period are finding their sort of um, evocation and summary here with this movie by anderson and you know if, if we dig into anderson's films his, his characters until now have all been sort of aspirational right they they want something they're they're yearning and leaning towards something. And Doc is not that character. He's broken. And there, there, there's something that's fixedly broken about him. And the only hope that I really find about, you know, the, the progressive cause is the very end, the last couple shots of the movie where he breaks the fourth wall and he gives us a little glint, right? And, and so, you know, this idea that there's still, still a seed alive of this sort of rebellion um, there, that it's not completely subsumed. And... It, it, it caused instantly the first time I saw it, my this really strong desire to not only reread the book, but to go back and look for those moments of hope throughout the rest of the film. We're, 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 it's just kind of a morass, right? It's one of those 70s mysteries that don't have a solution. The more that you yeah. know, the less that you know. And, um, but at the very end of it, there's, there, there's Anderson sort of um, offering a moment that the, all the heroes are still there, but maybe they're hibernating and just waiting for a cause. Um, it's a quiet moment of hope, or at least, it's yeah. a moment, the hope, hope that there is hope. 
hope that there yeah. will that there will be something to hope for later on. You know, and 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 a moment that I think the only other time you see it in the movie is when he sees the the picture of Jenna Maloney's baby. Yeah. Right. Where you know he suddenly has the moment of absolute clarity. Um, and, and, you know, where the rest of it is sort of in a gate, you know, in a fog, and you're not. I wasn't. I'm still not 100% sure of what's real, and not real, in the movie, in, in that sort of literal sense. Always know? debatable with this. With this. Yeah, movie. yeah. It's a fog, right? It's a literal fog. You mentioned the fog again, but it's a literal fog. And um, but but you know, I was really drawn by the visuals too. You know, sort of at the end of the scene that 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 that, that we're to focus on here is that. You know, when they're driving in, in that car, Japonica um, uh, driving you know, with, 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 with the good doctor, Martin Short from the back. And, you know, the way that the, the shot and sort of this process <laughs> shot, you know, this whole Hollywood yeah. process yeah. shot. And, uh, you know, it, it, like it really reminded me. In the back. Indeed, yeah. It really reminded me of, um, a, 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 of a so similar sequence in Blue Velvet with, with the Kyle McLaughlin character being driven out to the desert. and. Um, and that sort of forced artificiality and almost Edward Hopper-esque sort of isolation and artificiality um, too there. It, 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 it struck me that there was something, you know, um, consciously, self-consciously nostalgic about the way that he wanted to shoot this film. And, and you know, with nostalgia, it's, it's seldom rosy. It's always a remembrance of things that have been lost, like Christine, I guess. And, 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 and Aaron Weiss has that element for me but as much as I love it and I think it's fun and funny and sexy and all those obvious things I also find it to be extremely sad um well I think yeah. that that comes from when you say you can't have nostalgia unless something is gone unless something has been lost and so I think that feeds back into and my god there's so much to work with with what you just gave me I feel like Doc reading Adrian Precious jacket at the uh, his police jacket at the end of the movie there's so much to, to dive into, but you use that phrase, the, there's a feeling of, with the, the visual aesthetic of this film, there's a feeling of grand romantic decay. And I think that is a, that is a perfect and poetic encapsulation of, of inherent vice, of, uh, of the aesthetic of inherent vice, which is grand romantic decay, which you, you essentially have to have. If you're going to be nostalgic, you have to have decay and you have to have loss. You can't long for something if it's still there, if it's right beside you. And so you, it is that kind of you have to have the sour to have the sweet thing. You have to have the loss to be able to wistfully wish for something. And that is, that is this movie to a T. And that, 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 that PTA and Ellswit, in what has apparently been a, was a contentious shoot, for the two men, according to Ellswit in, a, in an interview, I think it was about a year ago, he said this kind of broke their partnership. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why, and he, he won't elaborate, and I have asked. Um, and it's, it, but there's something about what they did on this film, it so captures that, that sense of grand romantic decay, that, that postcard sense, because the, the, that's what this film is. This film is a faded, the faded wrinkled postcard you pull out of someone's book that they haven't opened in six or seven years or you find in their drawer and you realize oh my god this person was longing for someone and I never knew about it till I see this this single piece of paper that contains so much sadness and aching and longing for something that that was so fleeting for them well you know I really love that image that you provide there because I'm reminded of his uh, uh, uh Joaquin Phoenix's profession and the master taking portraits you know exactly. for a while the sort of awkward family portraits and stuff and 
you know, there's there, there's a thread that I, I, I've sort of drawn in my mind of this sort of being the last film of his Pinchon trilogy. Uh, Which I PTA, really wanted to yeah. dig into with uh, you. You know, when we talk about There Will Be Blood and we talk about uh, The Master, especially the way that it opens with Freddie Quill, I think the name of the character was in that film. Yeah. You know, sort of in a crow's nest is very much like, you know, the opening of Gravity's Rainbow. Rainbow. You know, and I love Gravity's Rainbow, you know, and, and what Gravity Rain, Gravity's Rainbow describes is it, it's referring to the arc of a nuclear missile mm-hmm. um, as it arcs through the sky, you know, and in Miracle Mile, that's the... Uh, that that's the book that Landa is reading um, before. Uh, You're you know, right. That's goes right. Down at the diner and there's a, um, you know, I, I was. It's funny. Steve Jarnett has this thing where he talks about Gravity's Rainbow, and I asked him about it when I was writing the book, and he said, "Oh, Gravity's Rainbow. I just use that because that's the one book everybody talks about, but no one's actually read." And he's like, <laughs> son of a bitch. I actually read the whole fucking thing because you, you put in your movie, oh, um, but. Uh, but yeah, the, the the thing about Pinchon is I think he's this, this, a, a great sort of um, encapsulator of, of of the national psyche, and P.T. P. Anderson um, also is. You know, he's a great diarist of American character. You know, he he, he covers the cults, he covers capitalists. You know, in this film he covers you know counterculture and hippies. And, you know, and so there, there there's a sense of like he's there pt anderson is there he's got his finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist if you will and he captures something in inherent vice of real yearning and longing for a period in which uh also we were deeply oppressed and didn't trust our government and all of our heroes were dead we thought and and but we you know created great art during that period in the 70s american 70s that we um found a way through even though we then had like you know a television president and reagan and all, yeah, everything that has happened. We were headed back to the good place, and then uh, 9/11 happened and changed everything again. But here's Anderson. You know, is, is this 2014? 2014. Same, look, yeah. there's a. You know, there's. They're still out there. People are irrepressible in many ways. It's just a matter of you know, sort of a Jacques Tati sort of idea, right? That there's. You know, you, you can make lines if you want to, but there's always going to be somebody that crosses them, and so here's. Doc, who is, uh, you know, maybe at the end giving us a little push. Um, and, and I think that that's what's lovely about Inherent Vice and what makes it less and more, I think, than um, a lot of the, the, the 70s films like Night Moves or Parallax View that don't give us any kind of hope. You know, here's yeah. a film that actually does give a little bit of hope. Um, well, indeed. I don't even know if you could say that the book gives any hope. You know, the does, book is uh, yeah. a just a goddamn bitterly cold and angry it's funny but that is a bitterly angry pinch on looking back and just angry at what happened angry at himself angry at the counterculture angry at what they believed and what they didn't know angry at the people who connived and took advantage of that it is just a bitterly angry angry novel which i i took me aback a little bit when I read it because you can read a Pinchon novel and you can feel a whole spectrum of emotion, but I don't know if you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if you disagree, I don't know if you feel him and like maybe the mood of his psyche is as, as, as sort of Lijesque as that sounds. Yet you read something like Inherent Vice and, you know, PTA had a great line about, you know, why did he write this book? It must be because he felt something was left unresolved. He could, he's Thomas Pinchon. He could write about literally anything, but he chose to look back at this moment 
of his own youth set in a fictionalized version of where he lived in that moment that has to mean something and he has to be angry enough again there's that that nostalgia that something has to have been lost for you to be ruminating so deeply on it and yet unlike doc in the film and pta in in its execution there doesn't seem to be any redemption in the novel there doesn't seem to i mean it just we're talking about that ending where you know, I feel like PTA can be sometimes a hard person to locate his very specific attitudes about anything in his films. I think you get kind of a general sense, but I think sometimes, especially as his films have gone on and become uh, a little bit more difficult to to label this thing and that thing, uh, there are very uh, there are moments where I don't think it's, it's 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 as easy to go. This is PTA. This is how he feels. This is him saying this to me. But that shot of Doc looking in the camera and smiling that feels like for a moment pta took over joaquin phoenix's body and that's him smiling at us and saying everything's going to be okay conversely you read the book doc's alone driving off and just hoping that there will be eventually something to hope for maybe he'll you know hoping that it'll just be different this time and And look you know i'm 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 hypercritical of steven spielberg for being an absolute visual savant and an absolute child in the way that he needs to tell stories, <laughs> you know, like something like Minority Report for the first 98% of it is an absolute masterpiece. It is so good. And the last 2% of it is horrific. And so, you know, because it's so saccharine and of course, and we, but we, we literally have to tell ourselves that that's a dream sequence just well, to accept, to just exactly, so that we can stomach. Exactly. If, we, in, we're in searching not... back through the text, you know, Oh, you, <laughs> it's you gotta know, be, he, you know, they say, no, he, he's gotta be in prison and he's dreaming. <laughs> they said that they do that. That's gotta yeah. be the ending. Um, but, but, you know, for all that, I did appreciate the lightness of relative lightness of the ending of this, even though it feels a little bit out of left field, I, kind of, you know, uh, for, 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 for sort of the way that the rest of the film seemed to be heading. But th- there is a, a lightness throughout the course of the film. I guess I'm reversing myself again instantly. Um, <laughs> that, that I really, really appreciate about this film. And, you know, if there's one thing that always, that, 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 that I, I've traced through Anderson's movies, it's that it's the aspirational, again, nature of his characters and how critical and wry he is about that aspiration. It's almost like, you know, sending white heat over and over again. Top of the world, man. Yeah, but even shot six times, you're about to blow up, right? So there's <laughs> there, there's this thing, like, you know, at the end of There Will Be Blood, you know, he's wealthy beyond all measure, but he's just murdered his stepson. You know, there's, there's this unbelievable sort of, like, you know, in Anderson's movie, even Phantom Thread, you know, you're the most successful something in the world, and your wife poisons you every few months so they can feel love. And so so there's, like, this, you know, there's real criticism, I think, of that aspiration. But the, the movies that I love, by Anderson the most, not just admire. The movies that I love the most are the movies like Punch Drunk Love and, and, and this, where he actually allows his characters to have a romantic resolution, a, a comic resolution in a way. Um, no matter how broken those characters are, no, no matter how broken the rest of the film or the world that they inhabit seems to be, uh, there is a lightness and a reward for their aspiration. All Barry wants in Punch Drunk Love is to save a lot of pudding and take his girlfriend on a vacation and all you know, Doc wants and inherent vice is to get back with Shasta. And so for, for Anderson, it seems like he's only critical of people when the top of the mountain is being the biggest porn star in the world. You know, if the top of the mountain is just getting with the right person, he's there. And there's, there's a certain, you know, he's sympathetic and there's a certain romance, I think, again, to that, um, that comes through in inherent vice. And, you know, 
ironically, inherent vice is all about wrong sex. It's all about, you, you know, quote unquote, immoral sex, you know, far for me to shame sex workers, God bless sex workers, especially during quarantine. But there, 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 there's, there, there's something that's like really wholesome, actually, about the very end of that, uh, end of the film where, you know, he allows chance to actually to have this remarkable character development. But he gives up anywhere, you know, there's that great uh, Joanna Newsom voiceover where she says something like, you know, to be honest, he's never seen that many different kinds of rate, you know, emotions projected on his, her face before. Yeah, and the, the facial, the face ingredients. Face ingredients. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. so much better. Oh, but yeah, there's there, there's a real. I'm charmed by that movie, even though, you know, even for all of its uh, um, rougher elements, I guess uh, that I, I don't always find in his other movies. I think his other movies are. are almost you know clinical explorations of, of ambition and, and 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 sort of the zero-sum game of ambition for him um unless that end game is love so well, i I'm think there. that i think something that makes inherent vice so wild but also so difficult for some people because i think it makes it harder to quantify is that the great writer jason bailey was on the show few episodes back and he said you can basically cleave pta's career into two halves there's the first half which is coke kid pta and then their second half which is weed dad mm. and now the unique thing about inherent vice is it feels like coke kid and weed dad are working together to make a singular there's there are elements of the strange and kubrickian post there will be blood filmmaker and there are a lot of hot-blooded surges from the man who made from the young man who made sydney and boogie nights and magnolia and punch drunk and i love that you called this film the rosetta stone of you know i think you meant it kind of as the 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 rosetta stone and the triptych of his pinchonian trilogy if you want to call it that but i i, I do think that this is weirdly I think that this film is a lot like PTA's White Album in that it contains everything that he does under one roof. And that's, it can be a little tonally jarring at times, but this is also the, you know, the, the cinema son to Jonathan Demme. So we, you know, I, it's natural that there would be those tonal whiplashes. But I think that that also makes the film, and obviously this is one of, the, one of his works that did not do very well with, with audiences, with mass audiences. I think something that makes it hard for them to grip onto is exactly that. It's hard to know, well, wait, is this a naked gun comedy or is this like a, just a sad bastard? The mystery isn't the point. The sadness is the point cutters way farewell to an elegy or a farewell elegy. Is this, is this, is this like night moves? Am I just supposed to be confused and angry and sad? <laughs> and I think it's because it has all of those elements of his, of his films. It's, it's harder to get your arms around it because you can pick any one scene and it's a completely different film. You know, a good case in point is part of the scene that we're talking about today. It follows one of the most sweetly melancholic sequences of Anderson's entire filmography, Doc and Shasta running in the rain to, to Neil Young. And then to, uh, to, to just cut from that and the devastation of seeing the golden fang built in that place in, in place of where your perfect, memory had taken uh taken hold to, to to cut from that to martin short 
dressed like Austin Powers and dropping his pants and running out of the room with a vial of cocaine and a secretary. It, it, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's, it's my, it, it contains everything that he does. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that jarringness, um, you know, because it, it sort of is, it feels like sort of the summer of love. People talk about the 60s and it's really only two years, right? And, and, and so it goes right from there to 1970 and, and then escalation in, in Vietnam and Watergate and, you know, the death of King and Kennedy, you know, Bobby and, and, and Fred Hampton, Black Panthers, Megger Evers, you know, all, all at the end of that decade, all these people assassinated and murdered. And all of a sudden in the 70s, we find ourselves in the middle of this paranoid authoritarian state in, in a way. Um, and, and, and it's jarring. And I think throughout our history, we, we see in film these like moments where, you know, in, in the 1950s, you've got Rebel Without a Cause. And where, but at the end of Rebel Without a Cause, Jim, you know, listens to his mother. He puts his, you know, his coat around Natalie Wood. They'll, they'll be married. The, the gay friend is dead in the planetarium. Everything is fine. You know, you listen to your mother in, 19, in the 1950s. And in 1960, if you listen to mother, you're psycho. So it's, it's, it's a really quick flip, you know, and I wish yeah. I could claim that for turn of phrase. That's Ethan Morton. He's a wonderful critic. But, um, but yeah, it, you see these moments where we, we have these really quick reactions. And in, in the Inherent Vice, you have this sort of golden place. I love that. You know, the velvet morning, like the Lee Green, uh, <laughs> this velvet morning. There's something really beautiful about those places that we've lost. It's just sort of kingdoms and cities in our mind that are no longer there anymore. They're populated by younger versions of ourselves having these moments um, that make the rest of our lives worth it. <laughs> you know that, that mm -hmm. we, we always think back on those things, and 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 then you jar into this sort of like, but the world really is run by crazed dentists uh, who are pedophiles, <laughs> um, and and it's all about lost girls, and it's all about predatory men, and it's all about you know this is actually the real power structure in the world and you, you, you go from your, the velvet morning of, of your sweet summer child youth into the sort of dark Stygian night of, of, of reality. And, and it's like, I feel like, man, you know, and, and, and inherent vice, even the title, you know, Pinchon's title is, I think the sort of really uh, not so uh, subtle play on this idea of the original sin, right? You know, this vice that's inherent right. in, in you. And original sin really is just knowledge of good and evil, knowledge of sex. And throughout the course of this film, it's it's this course of gaining knowledge, which is seen as, you know, evil. He's much more innocent than innocent and simple. And all those terms that we use for happiness are related to ignorance. Um, and the more ignorant that he stays, the happier that he is. And the more seasoned he becomes, the less happy he is. And the the, 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 detect the, the detective's it, curse. Indeed, yeah. The the, the it, 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 it's Oedipus. It's the first detective, right? The, yeah. He solves the mystery. It's him. It's terrible. I can't believe I solved that mystery. That's me. <laughs> so, you know, here in Inherent Vice, you, you go through the cycle again, right? You you say, you know, the, the reason the progressive movement failed in the United States is me. I didn't keep fighting. I didn't try hard enough. I was given over to despair. You know, instead of opening doors to perception, marijuana has made me dull. You know, there's that scene with Reese Witherspoon's, you know, DA girlfriend who says, take off your glasses. How many joints did you smoke today? You can't remember. You know, the, the, there's this idea that we've, that generation of progressives has dull, dulled themselves to the pain of that movement, uh, yeah. failing, essentially. And, you know, that carries over into the modern day. You, you have 
no true progressive leaders, uh, at least none that are acceptable. We were too afraid that the same things will happen again. When Obama was uh, nom you know, elected, I, I, I was overjoyed and also terrified that he was going to catch a bullet. The, there's something in the American character now that is, you know, especially on, on our side, quote unquote, I think that's terrified of winning because of what that cost us um, at some point. And then I believe that inherent vice captures a little bit of that real melancholy and, and grief uh, for our idealism. If we talk about sort of the, the loss of Eden, that's what we're talking about uh, throughout, throughout inherent vice, you know, and then when Shasta comes back and offers herself and he notices her nudity, you know, it becomes an Old Testament allegory uh, in many ways. And I think Pinchon, being Pinchon, would not have been blind to that allegory. Perhaps he was writing it. That's what Inherent Vice is. Um, the film, though, says, you know, I, I, something a little bit different. I think it gives a different conclusion. That's sure we're excluded from Eden, but that doesn't mean that uh, re return is impossible. Um, but it, it has to be sort of a state of mind, and it has to be as a product of struggle and search and perhaps compromise. I mean, at the end, he trades all that heroin for, for, for Corey's freedom, right? So the, there, there's always this sort of like compromise that has to happen. And that's, you know, I, I like the idea of the, you know, the, the, the weed daddy, but I'm really reminded more of, of, you know, Martin Scorsese's later career versus his early career, where now, now he's making these sort of meditative, regretful films, you know, yeah. like Silence, you know, and, and where he's talking about man, I wish I wasn't such a whatever. And, you know, they're, they're old person films, really. I, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but, <laughs> no, no, exactly. but you know, could probably only be made by someone with a certain set of life experiences. Someone and, and, a certain, and a certain set of miles to, to be able to look back that long, to have that long of view. Absolutely. Time. Absolutely. There's a, you know, that reminds me, this is very descriptive, but there, there's a, I used to listen to Ani DeFranco a lot when I was in school. Uh, that was me. But um, she has this lyrical set that I love where she says, uh, uh, stretch marks like highway to see where it grows, like highways to see where it grown. I love that. You know, there's sort of this idea of like the scars that you accumulate physical or otherwise are the map, you know, the, the cartography of, of your experience. And, you know, these filmmakers are showing us a different thing. You know, now P.T. Anderson talks about marriage and, and, and Phantom Thread and what that really means. And, nurturing sort of a difficult creative you know but maybe Maya Rudolph has to go through so what is it that he's <laughs> talking about in inherent vice right maybe it's this sort of idea that you know if I made this as a younger man I'd make something really pretentious and hard to watch like Magnolia and but now I'm older and I'm going to make something that's sort of like free-flowing and really about this guy sort of learning to live with himself and his disappointments and finding maybe a little bit of fulfillment despite all of that uh, you know, love in the wasteland, I guess. Uh, and here, here it is. And I love that, that PT Anderson, I love a lot. I, I have to say, I don't really, I honestly don't really like any movie before Punch Drunk Love, which I adore, you know, and I think there's, there's a real change there for him where he became a more emotional filmmaker and less of a, le, 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 less of a dick. And here's the thing, right? I, I do like dick <laughs> filmmakers. I, you know, I, I love asshole filmmakers. I, I love Billy Wilder movies. Billy Wilder, Every one of his movies is an asshole. It, yeah. He's the worst human being. And so, but they're wonderful. They're really great. And can you imagine his Schindler's List, right? But <laughs> I really love P.T. Anderson at this stage in his career. Each one of his movies, I, I, you know, I look forward to like I look forward to the, the new Malick film or whatever. He's now making movies that are 
um, meditative and self-reflective um, and not just angry and show, showing off. He's become, you know, sort of a master. And I think that's a remarkable evolution for him. And that's great. And I agree. Oh my, so much to work with there again. And, but I agree with you. And I also, I, I think that oddly, his last few films, I think, are viewed as, as chillier. And, and they are because there's a higher degree, I think, of formalism and, and a sense of control, even though behind the scenes, everyone has said he's much more relaxed a filmmaker now and, and far less in control. And, you know, not storyboarding every single shot like Magnolia or Boogie Nights. But what I think, I, I think that there, yeah, there's, there's an almost cosmic level of humanism that has come into his later films. However, however chilly their aesthetic may be, there is a, I think there's a warmth that comes with like fatherhood and, and just getting older and that, that Scorsese-ish, just looking back with a little bit, of, a little bit more humility that, that, that comes with time. And yep. yeah, it really, really, really does affect you. Um, yeah, and you, you feel that you feel that yes, especially yes. with I think from Punch Drunk on there's just that feeling of a need a want for warmth and, and the, yeah. the pursuit of that being enough to fill a 90 minute to two and a half hour film just the need and want of that warmth and to share that warmth and it's yeah. not that that wasn't there you see that in you know God the God only knows sequence of Boogie Nights or you know mm -hmm. so much of the entirety of Magnolia is consumed with looking past what is uh, the slights and the wrongs of our life to try to be able to forgive so that you can feel that warmth again. But I do think that so much more of his, his latter half is suffused with that. And it's interesting to see him approach certain narrative equations with that mindset. And I, I'm thinking now of how you connect the phrase inherent vice to original sin both in, in, in Pinchon's novel, but also I think, you know, in this, in this film, what's interesting is I think you're right. And you, when you also mentioned, you know, Oedipus being the original detective and learning that the mystery was him, the, the riddle was him and the, the horror of that that, that, that he was the thing he was searching for. And the reason I mention that is I think that the horror of both the, especially in the novel, and it's also in the, in, or in the film, is in that scene in which Doc and Shasta are running in the rain. And it's so idyllic and sweet and wonderful. And then there's that line about how Shasta was already one foot out the door. Doc didn't know it at the time, but his, he knows it now. So his memory of that perfect moment is tainted. But also to remember that it's taking place next to this open field that is going, that has been cleared and raised so that the golden fang may build its tower there. And I feel like that, con that, that connects back to that idea of original sin, that this place that, that, that Doc viewed in his mind and his heart as Eden was also the cradle for the, 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 the literal force that is destroying hope and humanity on Earth. And I think that a lot of the rage in Pinchon's novel came from, how, couldn't, how could we not have seen it? How could we not have seen that the thing that was going to kill the 60s, it was in the bloodstream way before the 60s even, even came to be. It was always there. The shadow of it was right over us, and we never, ever saw it. And then when, when, when JFK and RFK 
and King and X, when they all fell, that's when we said, oh my God, everything has gone to hell, never realizing that those were just symptoms of the disease that we had already been infected with long, long, long ago, too long, to, too long ago to ever truly be cured. And that in the face of that, in the face of that, sad, the sadness of that knowledge, you also say that Anderson's version of this film is about a man reconciling that or trying to come to terms with that and saying, well, what can I do? And when you say it's about how it's not impossible to get back into the garden, what I, the reason I view Doc as a hero, the, what makes him a hero to me is I think that people like he and Shasta, it is too late. I think there's almost, because they are so self-aware now, it's almost as if their knowledge of the fact that they are outside of the garden means that they can never re-enter it because they know too much. They know they're outside. But, and I'm gonna steal some lines from Drew McQueenie who was on an episode months ago and he mentioned this, in times of such chaos, whether you're in 2020 and your president's name is Trump and we're all hiding out uh, to avoid catching a, a plague, or it's 1970 and you feel like your government is actively trying to kill you. It is little kindnesses, small acts of kindness that are almost more noble than a large act because you, you could lose your life trying to do this one little thing. And, and being willing to, to sacrifice everything for that. And for Doc, it's to prevent one little girl from getting the little kid blues. To prevent one kid from falling outside of Eden, you know, before it's too late for her, and getting her dad back to her before she recognizes anything went wrong. And you know, so I feel like a big part of the film is reconciling, yeah, you can't go back. Once you're out, that nostalgia, you're going to carry, you know, you're going to carry that weight. And that's not going to that's not going to ever ever fall off your shoulders. But that doesn't mean that you can't do something good with that knowledge. Yeah, and I think for I, me that's ultimately Doc's arc is realizing I'm never going to get back in, but I can keep this one little girl from falling out. Yeah, you, you know, I, I I I'm reminded a lot in this film of, of my favorite poem. Yeah, when you talk about pretentious, here we go. Uh, it's by uh, it's by William Wordsworth. It's called "A Few Lines Written Above Tintern Abbey." I don't know if you know the poem. It's 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 a poem that whenever I have writer's block or you know whatever, I'll I'll read it out loud and I'll try to find a place outside and I'll read it and it moves me every time to read it um, and inspires me to, to read it. There's something mysterious I find about it. And one of the best lines in it is uh, uh, the best portion of a man's life is little nameless unremembered acts of kindness and love. And you know I I think there's exactly. this sense that. Um, you know, life is, 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 as soon as you become knowledgeable, you know, as soon as you hit puberty, as soon as knowledge becomes something that's inescapable, inherently viceful for you, um, life is a struggle, life is toil, life is difficult and hard and full of heartache and suffering and grief. And the things, the only things that make it okay are these little moments of grace that you hold on to and hopefully you recognize at the time, but you can revisit. And throughout the course of your life, there will be a few um those are it and and you hold on to that and you hope for another and that's it that's what you got and you hope to be that for others and you hope that others are that for you and that's the hope if, you, if you're not a sociopath and so um <laughs> you know that guides our 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 performances in our life I think. um 
and, and I think inherent vice, you know, particularly is very much like Tintern Abbey for me in, in that it is the story of a place and the story of a time that's not there anymore. It begins with, you know, five summers have passed, five summers of the length of five long winters. And that the, the sense that time has passed, you know, longer time, especially now in quarantine, we're feeling that sort of, you know, lost the muck time um, has passed. And the things that we've lost are lost. Can we re re revisit them? Are we reminded of them when we go to those places? where they happen. There's a, you know, a strong story of place, sense, and, and work with poetry particularly. But, you know, very much so an inherent vice, which opens with a shot of the beach, a shot of a, an alley leading to the beach, which is so suggestive and beautiful, you know, something that you would have taken out of an Elliot home, if you will, the, you know, Rat's Alley leading to the beach where the poet sits between uh, the ocean and the city. And so there's this real poetry about the way that he's presenting his nostalgia and his acedia uh, throughout the course of Inherent Vice that is so compelling to me and so gorgeous and instantly now touching, you know, emotionally touching to me when I watch it. Um, when Chester drives off in the beginning, watch your feet, and she drives off, and, and that can song comes on, you know, vitamin C comes on, and Anderson allows that song to complete play all the way through to its end Talk about yeah this. over several other several other beats several other scenes and i refer to it i think you know six years ago i talked about this at in, the, in that review where um you know it, it it feels to me like a long tracking shot even though he keeps editing and doing different shots because the music threads a beat all the way through the only time i've ever really seen that in in, in, in an american film was dark city uh, the alex Proyas film that opens through this whole like kind of Beat that goes into his hotel room and then it comes up, kind of pulls out into Jennifer Connelly seeing sway in the nightclub. There's a driving kinetic motion that goes through there that makes me feel like it's all one shot. Um, anyway, the, the, there, there's a beautiful poetry, there's a beautiful cadence and meter to, to the film. Not, you know, a term that's not often used for film, I think, uh, that, that is so compelling and instantly puts me in this place of loss. And, and, and yearning um, that you're talking about. And, and, and by, by the end of the film, he really honors that. For me, I think Pinchon, his later films, this and his next book is, is at the bleeding edge. You know, they talk about 9 yeah. um, I don't know that he is, I, I, I don't know that he's bitter about the world. I think he's bitter about himself having hope. Yeah. Or having had hope for the world. It isn't so much that the world is ugly, it's that he once didn't know that it was ugly um, and, and believe that it could be something else. And I think that's what we feel a lot. And that's why I'm drawing, I think, up to pinch on as well. But um, Anderson's providing kind of a, a sap to that, you know, an antidote, if you will, to say, look, guys, yeah, but, you know, those little, those little nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and love are still possible. They so, count for something. Yes. They count so they're for something. Actually, they actually count more than the something we we give them credit for because they happen right and, you know what's the you're 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 gonna quote uh you know these these immortal poets and, and works of literature and i'm gonna quote willy wonka and the chocolate factory <laughs> but it's like you know so shines a good deed in a weary world that there, there's something so intrinsic yeah. about that line that is baked into i think a film like in, is baked into this film the, the, that idea that the wearier the world, the more the singular and tiny act of count, kindness really does count for something, yep. especially when things are as Pinchon sees them, which is so irrevocably lost or 
potentially hopeless. You know, I think, and I think you're right that the pension was more angry at the fact that he had hope, that he allowed himself hope, that he allowed himself the idea that, you know, we're going to beat this thing, you know, power to the people. We're going to march. We're going to change things. And it's interesting that you call these three films, There'll Be Blood, The Master, and Inherent Vice, his kind of Pinchonian trilogy. I'm guessing Mason and Dixon would be your your There Will Be Blood uh, corollary. Yes, indeed. But uh, what's interesting, you, you know, you, you said earlier in this episode, you know, There Will Be Blood is about capitalists and the master, you have cultists. And then if we're going to continue this alliterative line of C's in uh, Inherent Vice, you have the counterculture. What I think is interesting, which ties the work of these two men together is, you know, indeed, I think the novel Inherent Vice is saying, look, all was lost before you knew there was anything capable of being lost before you realized you had anything to lose it had already fallen out of your pockets well what's interesting then about the subject matter of these anderson films is you have the capitalists in blood you have the cultists in the master and who are coming to roost in inherent vice but capitalists and cultists mm-hmm. indeed they're, they're they're revealed to be all part of the same thing and i think the true horror of inherent vice novel and film is that the counterculture is also an incorporated wing of the thing they just don't know it that counterculture cultists and capitalists are all part of the same organism the same mechanism and the reason i point that out is because that is the the motor that drives so much of the first half of the scene that we are going to talk about today And so on that note, let's watch it and we're going to come back and we're going to dig in. What do you think of my chompers? Heroin sucks the calcium out of your body like a vampire. If you use it for any length of time, your teeth go all to hell. That's just the good part. Duck! Duck! Dr. Rudy, I'm back. You're not Dr. Rudy. You're not Dr. Rudy. That's not Japonka, ain't it? Japonka Fenway? Imagine meeting you here. Doc rooted through the hmm. city dump that was his memory, recalling that Japonica here had been a pretty open and shut runaway daughter case. Hardly worth daily scale, let alone the extravagant bonus her father, Crocker Fenway, had insisted on paying when Doc finally brought Japonica back home. So what have you been up to? Escaping, mostly. And I escape real good. Escaping what? Chris Skyladen. This, like, booby hatch my parents keep sending me to. Booby hatch? Up in Ojai? You know it? Shakes a tambourine. Ooh. Ah, Dr. Rudy! Okay, all right. Japonica, you promised me. You Did you not promise me? <laughs> What are you doing here? I escaped again for you. Oh, okay. Woo! Woo-hoo! 
Look at the greedy little hippie snorting away, are you? Your parents know you're here? The Fenways, they were heavy-duty South Bay money and led lives of unusually high density and often incoherence. Her father, Crocker, also known as the Dark Prince of Palos Verdes, was a lead lawyer at the office of Voorhees Kruger, who had given Doc his first paying gig as a P.I. Man, like, I'm sorry. Jeez, what is it? That's, that's my steering wheel? I don't know how to drive. Oh, man, I thought you said you... Hi. Smile maintenance chick. How lovely. Miss Fenway may appear a little psychotic today. Groovy. What? It's groovy being insane, man. Where are you at? It's not groovy to be insane. Japonica here has been institutionalized for it. Okay, come on, uh, Dennis. We gotta figure out a way back to the beach. Hey, if you need a ride, I'm heading that way. Huh? Uh, cop friendly, everything cool with your ride, Japonica? Brake lights, license plates, so yep. forth? Yeah, A-okay. Mind if I tag along with you guys? Contingencies of the road and so forth? Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe we should just do a bit more of that for the road? Yes, yeah, you owe it. Something that you keep referring to in in our conversation, and you you laid it out in your review, which I'm going to quote again, just to make you squirm. You mentioned in your review, all of inherent vice is an examination of the immediate aftermath of the 60s, which were, after all, only really 1968 and 1969. It's about how there's no there there. No solution, no mystery, no heroes, no villains. It's shambolic even as it's meticulous. It is what it seeks to explain itself, the explanation of itself, which I think, A, immediately loops back to that idea of Oedipus as being the first detective. He is the mystery. The thing that he is solving is himself, and that is the horror of his discovery. But I also, you know, I... I, and unless I misunderstand what you what you've written, I feel like there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in today's scene as Doc drifts wayward and rudder, rudderless towards this hidden dental clinic behind the office of uh, Rudy Blatnoid, in which you you see this clinic for ex junkies looking for new chompers after kicking heroin at Criscylodone, and it's it's the only moment in this otherwise increasingly really frenzied sequence. That, that's quite like this, but it, and that is that it is so consumed with just this beige, banal sadness. Uh, the youth of a movement just twisted by unendurable reality into heroin glazed zombies. And their reward for trying to kick that is to invest even more deeply into the system that drove them to smack in the first place. And, you know, there's, a, there's that great line when. Sancho Smilex, played by Benicio del Toro, he's talking about the ship, the Golden Fang, and how it changed. And he tells Doc, it's a horror story. But they did do it. This is a horror story. And that line comes back to me in this moment where, for however, and again, speaking of tonal whiplash, for however goofy the introduction to Blatinoid is and how the resumption of his character here in a moment is, there's this just oasis of horror in the middle of that where we realize, oh my God, these capitalists and these cultists have totally incorporated the counterculture into, they've cannibalized it, they've consumed it. And now everywhere the, this generation turns for escape, that escape, that, that false ultimately escape is being fueled by the very thing they are trying to escape from. 
you know, yeah. the, 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 the Vietnam consumed world that has been created by the thing. They're trying to escape that with heroin from Vietnam, which ruins them. They then try to escape by via a place like the Criscylodon Institute, like Koi Harlingen does, which only sends Koi deeper into to the fang. And the, the heroin that they've used uh, has ruined the, sucked the calcium from their bones so they have to replace their teeth. They literally have to pay the fang to fix the teeth that they paid the fang to ruin. And I don't know, there's something about that. I find that to be so harrowing and sad. Yeah. Well, it, and, and so so familiar, right? I mean, it, it's twenty twenty, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. And well, it's it's Upton Sinclair. It, it's time. It's, it's, it's continually investing in the system it, that is destroying us. It is, and and you know the logical end result of capitalism. If it is working well, if it's working exactly as it's supposed to work. It's Jeff Bezos becoming a billion, a trillionaire. That's the <laughs> God, logical geez. end result of capitalism. Yeah. That's capitalism that's working, yeah. and you know. Bezos becomes a trillionaire, 100,000 Americans are expendable, you know, uh, or an afterthought. And then essential workers are just another euphemism for the guys that were sitting over the trenches in World War One. They're only essential because you actually need the attrition um, for, for capitalism to continue. And so here's this rejuvenation of our, uh, of our, you know, it's like, it's like a, a forest fire and not a controlled burn, just a fire that they set periodically. And then, you know, our government uses socialism to bail out capitalism every 10 years or so. And so all of a sudden now, you know, capitalism is this endlessly renewable font because socialism takes care of it because we are the canon font. We are the essential workers. We are the people that are making rich people richer. You know, I made a vow a few years ago. That I said, no, I, I just never want to work again for some rich asshole that I hate and I'm just making him richer. That's all I do. That's all I do. And, and I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, but... <laughs> How do you avoid it? How do you avoid that in our culture? You cannot work for anyone without working for some rich asshole that you hate. That's just the way that it is. And, you know, on top of it, there's this idea for me that money is a progressively addictive drug, that people with money just want more of it. It, it doesn't, it, it changes you essentially. I've never known someone who's made a lot of money um, that isn't different in some way. And so there's, all of this stuff is wrapped up in inherent bias, is wrapped up in Pinchon's paranoia and bitterness and anger. And, you know, you watch this and, 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 and then, Jip, Jip, you know, poor Japonica, who is, you know, really kind of a Henry James character, right? This sort of shining example of America's innocence of a culture of a young lady, right? And then you have these horrible old men around her that are predating on her. It's, a, it's an allegory for Hollywood, of course, but it's a, an allegory for humanity. This is what we do. You know, and, and inherent vices, you know, you could say that it's predictive of a lot of the stuff that nowadays, you know, it's predictive of me too, it's predictive of quarantine and predictive of Trump. You could say that, except that it's not. It's just sort of illustrative of how we've always been. And it's describing it's, the system that allows yes. those things yes. to propagate. It exactly it's, right. it's describing a system that allows for a Trump. And, and, you know, and to your point about, you know, the cultists being pulled into, I mean, the counterculture being pulled into this um, is, you know, I, I, I'm reminded of this old maxim about waging a land war in China. It's like, you know, the, the Chinese would always say that you, you cannot wage a land war in China. You just become Chinese. <laughs> you get, you yeah. know, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's Which is very appropriate here. Very appropriate. Yeah, it's just this giant voracious thing that, that swallows. Um, endlessly. It's this Euroborian worm. That's what capitalism is. And it's constantly eating itself. And that's the end result. It's, that's when it's working right. 
Um, yeah, that's and, what's weird. And, and, the, and, the, the, and it's, it's broken up into these classes where you have your, your capitalist class, you have your cultist class, you know, which is maybe the more kind of upper middle class. Then you do just have the cannon fodder of the, in this case, the counterculture, the youth yes. movement. People who are naive enough to believe in something enough to be so saddened by its loss that they would yes. be driven in mass to heroin or to something similar to that. And that, that, that the Fang is aware of that. And thus, what makes them so nefarious, you know, we can laugh at them because we look at Rudy Blatnoid at first. And we're like, what a cartoon this man is. But there's a deep monster. He represents a deeper monstrousness. And everybody laughs at Trump, too. Yep. They, oh, that's 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 he was exactly what I was going to say yep. is that. You know, it's funny until it isn't. It's funny until you realize, oh, he knew Japonica when she was 14 years old, 15, which, which was like, what, three years ago. Like a Jerry Seinfeld thing going on. Oh, God. The, exactly. Or as in, in the last episode, again, to mention Elric, he pointed out, we were, we were throwing around what would be a good double feature with the Rudy scene. Not the good double feature with Vice in general, just a good new Beverly cinema double feature with just their scene and a movie that he threw out that would be pretty good is he mentioned Kubrick's Lolita specifically because uh, that um, that uh, when we're talking about people that you you know you can kind of laugh at but ultimately you realize oh my god this is a monster he's, he's like you know Rudy Bladnoy he's Claire Quilty he's this guy you know it's Peter Sellers version of Claire Quilty this person it's you, you're laughing at him but then the more you you think about him the more you realize just what an absolute, and this is a dental pun coming up, what an absolute cavity of, of humanity this, this person is, what an absolute monster for, for his, what he is knowingly participating in and what he is knowingly and happily willing to destroy for his own, his own pleasure and his own, his own progress in the world and his own success in the world. And again, not to beat, to, to keep beating this drum, but it is, and I've mentioned this on this show before, but when you start to get really deep into this fang stuff, it is hard not to see that and go, oh, so it's, it's 2020, huh? Okay, so that, 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 where, we, where these characters were in 1970, that's exactly, that's, that's where we are right now. That's the, we're, and we're buying in, and we're, we're constantly betting on the system that has always ultimately failed us and yes. hoping hoping like all these other characters hoping that this time it's going to be different hoping like doc at the end of the novel that this time it's going to there's going to be a different ending when he comes around that curve there's going to be the beautiful blonde and the stingray that he hopes he's going to see and that all of this will take uh that the that the american fate will take a finally a different direction than the one we all know it's headed towards yeah the, 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 there are two minds right to this sort of idea of pandora's box the the image of pandora's box this idea that you know, you open it and all the bad things come out, or that you open it and the only thing that comes out is hope, which makes all the bad things unbearable. And, and, and so, you know, how, how, how does one deal with that separation, I think, personally, is how we approach the world, how we approach the film, um, how we approach everything, our, our, our relationships, our lives. Is it possible for us to contain all the evils in the world, or is it possible for us to contain hope? And is, is is the real evil in the world hope or is the evil in the world the lack of it and so it's like you know for, for me i think inherent vice asks really to bold, bold questions and in direct polar opposition to the pinch on source i think where he says 
look, uh, I choose to embrace hope. I, I choose to think that hope is actually a good thing, that it, it, it is enough. It is the, that little thing that is enough. Um, it's the lighthouse in the middle of the maelstrom, if you will. And holding onto that is the only thing that will guide people forward uh, in a positive way, that maybe things have never changed, and maybe things have never been different, but also what's never changed and also has never been different is the creation of great art, and the creation of great moments of protest, and the creation of great moments of grace. And if at the end the machine beats John Henry, John Henry fought like a bear until he died. And so there, there's this thing for me that, that, you know, partly resignation that comes with age. I just don't have as much fight in me as I used to have. But with that recognition also comes a greater um, appreciation for those little moments that with which we build our lives. I, I've, I recently have gone back to a day job in the um, essential industries. I really didn't, didn't necessarily have to, but you know, I wanted to. And essentially, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of a training store manager sort of guy for, for a sandwich chain out here. And it's really great because every day I get to interact with young people. Um, and, and looking back on my career, you know, I, I haven't always been a, a, a windy and pretentious film critic. I, 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 you know, I've had 25 years in corporate America and going back to corporate America after a couple of years off where writing for the first time in my career was supporting me for a couple of years. Um, going back into that environment a little bit, I, I realized I was drawn back because I missed those interactions with young people where I could say, you know, I hired this person when they were 18 years old and just out of college or ju just graduating high school rather, didn't know what they wanted to do. Now they have a master's degree and they're opening their own business. And, and I moderated their, their wedding, you know, and, and that for me, looking back, the titles never meant anything. The money never meant anything, you know, meeting celebrities or whatever really didn't mean that much either. At the end of the day, the only thing that I'd held close to my heart are my family and these people that I've been able to have a meaningful interaction with along the course of their life. I've been privileged enough to spend that time with them. Um, that was meaningful for them and for me as well. And so age, yes. And I think at a certain point inherent vice with P.T. Anderson at this age and him talking in this way with given his life experiences in the water and his bridge was, is extremely touching to me. You know, you do all the struggle, you do all the searching and you find out at a certain point in your life that there's nothing to find. Um, having all these letters after my name meant nothing to me. It made me miserable, more miserable than I've ever been in my life. I was making more money in my life and had more respect, quote unquote, and I did everything that I thought I was supposed to have done in my life. And it means nothing. And the only thing that's ever meant anything are the friends I've made along the way and the moments of kindness that I've been able to receive and give um, that are perhaps unremembered uh, by me or by them, but are meaningful nonetheless. And the sort of accumulation of all of that does mean something. Uh, it's easy to think that it doesn't because you look at the world and it's a fucking mess, but you know what? It's always been. And the moments of, it, of kindness that you can show another person and generosity do mean something. And I think inherent vice for all of its depravity, uh, obvious depravity and hilarious depravity, at the end of it has this one moment where you have that moment of lucidity where you say, look, okay, there, there, there's the Marty shorts and there's the poor, you know, Japonicas and there's all this stuff in the world. Yes, there, yes, 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 absolutely. But at the end of all of that, there's still yet room for kindness. And that is within our measure. That is within our circle to influence. Why don't we do that? Um, and I, th and I, and oh God, that's I'm trying to hold back tears here. Walter Jesus. That's, <laughs> <laughs> but 
man, no, I, what you're saying, it's so right. And it's so true when, when you use that, when you prism this film through that, because again, and, and it sounds like I'm constantly slagging the novel. I love the book. I love the book. Yep, sure. But there, there again, that, to use that phrase, there is a cosmic humanism at play in this film that just does not exist in the text. It is not in the book. And I think one of the things that is at play here is, as you said, the world's always been fucked. It's always been a mess. And when you have someone like Doc who you know, has recognized, oh my God, you know, Eden has soured, or at the very least, if it hasn't soured, I've, I've been, I've been sent out. I've been, you know, uh, I've been sent east of Eden. I'm out of here now. And it's, it's a, it's, 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 it's a horror show out here. And with that knowledge, that knowledge of, of, of being tainted, of being tainted by that knowledge, maybe it's not so much the hope that there is hope, but I think kind of to what you were saying, there is the hope that despite being tainted, I can still do something worthwhile, even if it's small. And that's something I think there is a seed of that. And it's, it's a, you know, maybe, you know, I'm look, I'm, I'm hosting a podcast about this. I was going to say, maybe I'm making a mountain out of a molehill here, but that's what the hell is a 50 episode in inherent vice podcast, but then make making 50. uh, (laughs) But there's a moment in this scene, we're talking uh, when Sordelige kicks in and she's talking about we, Doc comes out of the, the the heroin dentistry center to see young Japonica Fenway sitting out sitting across from Rudy's desk with that wonderfully glazed expression on her face, constantly tilting her head, and we get Sordelige filling in the gaps for us, explaining that Japonica is a constant runaway, uh, a daughter of. Crocker Finway, this this Orange County bigwig who lives lives of incredible lives a life of incredible hedonistic density, and what it's a blink where you'll miss it, or don't listen for a moment and you'll miss it. Moment in which Sorlege points out that Crocker Finway was Doc's first client, his first paying client as a detective, and that what that means, what that means is that this man who ultimately by the end of the film, Crocker Finway becomes the true face of the Golden Fang and kind of the ultimate representation of its villainy is this very 80 savings, 80 savings and loan scandal looking dude, uh, uh, basically laying out the entirety of the, the horrors of the Fang and uh, their lack of respect for any, the, anyone the second that that person pays them rent. That this man was the guy that actually gave Doc the seed money for everything he's done since. And while I think that that is very much in keeping with this Pinchonian idea of being corrupted from the beginning before you even realize there was a corruption, that Doc's entire enterprise, his entire method of earning a living, such as it is, was was begun with money from the, the root of all evil, this absolute source of evil in the California Republic. And yet, what's also kind of beautiful about that and it's something I think the film would grasp in a way the book does not, is the book sees that as, well, even Doc's own heroism is tainted. It's, it's fueled by the monster that he's trying to defeat. The film almost seems to say, yes, the, the, the Tower of the Fang was rooted in his memory of Shasta. Yes, the Golden Fang itself funded 
Doc's very first case and made him a detective. And yet Doc was able to take that, that evil funded mission that he was on. And ultimately, you know, he, what's that great line from the trailer? He's not a do-gooder, but he's done good. Despite that evil seed money, I'm rambling now. He was able to take that and do a good thing ultimately yeah. with, his, with his practice. He was able, despite the fact that all of the, all of the things, machinations, and despite the fact that his entire company, his entire uh, uh, PI business was, was funded originally by the thing, Doc was able to take that. And again, he was able to save that one family. He was able to yeah. reunite that one family. And that may, and maybe not in the, and ironically, Crocker Fenway a long time ago paid Doc to reunite his own family in a very monstrous fashion. And in the end, Doc takes that same business and he reunites a true family. And there's yeah. something so beautiful and poetic about that to me. Yeah. You know, honestly, I, I worry about taking too much solace in that. You know, I have very dear friends who work for very bad people. And the rationale is always. Yeah, that is where it gets scary. Yeah, man. The, the, the rationale is always like, I, yes, but I can only exact effect change from within. Yes, I can only, you know, I'm taking this money, but, 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 you know, I'm going to do good things. With it. It's like, it's like anyone on Trump's joint chief of, chief of staff. Like exactly. I can control them. We will, con as long as exactly. we're in place, we build, we'll, we'll be the lodestar that keeps it exactly. under control. But, 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 but then I think of things like, you know, Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life where he won't do that even in private to save himself he won't just pledge allegiance to an evil person um because you know th there's a george Eliot quote from which the uh, film takes its title about you know the reason that the world is as good as it is the reason that things aren't so bad for you as they could have been is owing to the number who've lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs that 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 it actually does matter the things that you do outwardly um, and, and that I, I think inherent vice, less than you know, celebrating Doc for, for reuniting family, which is undisputedly good, thing, right? But I think less for that. What it does is, for me, presents Doc as realizing at the very end the real beauty and grace of a moment with a girl that you love, and you're both young and beautiful, and you're driving away, and the girl that you love is on your arm, and she's got her head on your shoulder, and he looks at the camera, and he gives you a look. That actually is all there is it, it, it's sort of that key you know keats's consummation sublime where he talks about you know the grecian urn you know beauty is truth and truth is beauty that is all you know and all you need to know there's nothing else actually it's just beauty do we recognize those moments of beauty as enough as if as the pinnacle as everything and i i really believe that anderson gets it you know because he's so bitterly disappointed by people who don't in his movies and, and, and here he, he really gets this moment for Doc that, yes, he's tainted. We're all tainted. Yes, we've all taken money from people that we despise. Yes, we've done that. And we've made equivocations and excuses with ourselves to do so. Yes, we have. Do I recognize moments of real grace where I've made a connection, where I have done something good and positive and I can enter my house justified that night? Should we aspire for more? Um, maybe not maybe just that is enough and if we do that enough and we do it every day and we find a reason to do something the right way every single day maybe the world begins to change and you know this is man this is blue sky this is hippie talk this is crazy you know i get it i get it i, get it. <laughs> I, I hear all that 
but I also hear the other part of my brain saying, you know, it's like the emo Phillips joke where my favorite organ's the brain, but then I think, who's telling me that? Okay, but I, I get, <laughs> when we're saying that, that, okay, this is crazy talk, how, why we've been conditioned to say that it's crazy just to be kind to somebody. And that, you know, this is the basis of every religion, but somehow it gets corrupted into being rich and having, you know, coronavirus parties. So how is it that we have gone so far away from this real essential truth that's, that people have tried to teach from millennia, right? That it does matter who you are and it does matter how you represent and who you represent. You know, at a certain point, you, you cannot you can continue to represent something that you despise. Stop. If everybody stopped doing this and everybody, if everybody had the courage to live and the means to live as they were most, you know, their true convictions, this system would collapse, which is why we're all slaves to the system. We, they know this. If we ever made enough, if we may ever made a living wage, Travis, um, the world, the world would fall apart. And so we, we can't, um, we're not allowed to, but it doesn't mean that I can't appreciate the moment that, you know, my daughter gives me a hug when I get home or, that you know, I, I get to cuddle with my wife and, and, and my dog, and, and look, look look at the home that we built together. That the, the last few moments of raising Arizona, right? I mean, there, there's exactly. real contemplative beauty in those little moments, and you know, the world teaches us that we have to be something. We have to be something big, and really, the the biggest that we can ever be is that moment when you know Doc is driving away with. A beautiful girl on his arm who loves him and needs him and he needs her back. And that's enough. That's enough. Why are we talking about all this stuff right now? Why are we doing the show on Inherent Vice? We could just be sitting with loved ones. And... Oh man, Walter, you're you're impossible to talk to, man. You're you're impossible <laughs> to talk to. I've heard that before. You know, it's be you. you <laughs> it's because you throw out such gold that I'm. I'm sitting here. I feel like uh, what's his name of Mice of Men, where I'm just like movies are pretty. I, I like <laughs> I like movie. Do you, do you oh, tell me again about the movie, Walter? Stay away tell from me the again about the movie. Yes. Say that again. Stay away from the bunnies. Oh, <laughs> well, thank God! There, thank God there isn't a bunny scene in the. <laughs> then you know we'd spend three hours discussing it ad nauseum. But again, I think you, I think we're you you keep circling. Yeah, this 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 the, the purity of this idea, which is just having that unification with the person that you love that that should be enough that, should, that, that maybe or that has to be enough and yeah. uh it's maybe i had it i had it right the first time it, it, it shouldn't be that that has to be enough because the world won't give us any more it's the realization that that is enough and that you don't need any more yes. there shouldn't be anything else to expect from the world that's there's always going to be the Fang in the world. There's always going to be a Rudy Bladnoy. There's always going to be a Crocker Fenway. But that doesn't mean that there also can't be a Doc and a Shasta. That doesn't mean that there can't be a Koi and a Hope. Uh, you know, and I think that the it's I think that Hope is kind of an obviously named character, especially for Pinchon. Pinchon, excuse me. That person that's she's not nostalgic. She's she just knows what is owed to her, and in her mind, what is owed to her is, is her man, her family. And that 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 inability to believe that he's dead because she doesn't feel it. She feels that he's alive and that she that he is hers. And that idea that that would be enough if he could just come home, that would be enough. And she holds that bank receipt. She she keeps shaking it at bank managers and she shakes mm -hmm. it at the police and she mm -hmm. shakes it at Doc. 
And she says, these numbers, these dollars that you are giving me, they don't pay for anything. They don't pay for what I need and they don't pay for the hole in my heart and the, the, the shape of the man standing in my door. He's out there. That's what would make everything right. That's what will make everything okay. And then indeed, one of the most beautiful moments in the film and in PTA's entire filmography is that moment where Doc watches as Koi walks to the door and you just hear hopes, you hear her shout with happiness. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's it's moments like that's that. Enough. That's yep. enough. That's enough for that family. Like, and and it, it's, it's actually a lovely moment of, of foreshadowing in the film, foreshadowing Doc's own realization of what's enough for him. You know, I mean, he saw nothing, right? At the end of it, he's, he's, he's succeeded in nothing, really. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've said this before. He's not the, the Dashiell Hammett cowboy style detective that no. goes in and burns down the town and, and lays down a lattice of his own form of justice in his own image. Walter Hill, right? Yeah, it, like, like a Walter Hill. And then what? This is not last man standing. He doesn't walk out yep. of the town and it's been remade in his sense of justice and, and he can walk or, you know, quote Peck and Paws, you said, you know, he, he can enter his house justified knowing yep. that he's remade this, this corrupted force in his own image to be a thing of good. He's just, he's way, laid waste to all of it. No, he is definitely not uh, you know, a Red Harvest style detective. He doesn't, the Fang is as strong as it ever was. The Fang gets his heroin back. The Fang doesn't even have to pay for the heroin. Uh, Nixon is still president. Vietnam is still is still happening. You know, in the end, all that he did is he got that one family back together and maybe, maybe gets back together with Shasta Faye Hepburn. Yeah. Because as you and know, he, this, even, this don't mean that, we're back together. Right, even that doesn't matter so much as this moment that they have yeah. together, right? You know, and I think that, you know, that new Pixar movie Onward really fucked this up. It's a terrible movie. But the, the, there's the sense that if only I had another moment, that would be good. You know, my my dad and I had, had a strained relationship, especially towards the end of his life and everything. But, you know, I don't remember what his laugh sounds like now. He, he died like 16 years ago. And I thought a lot the last few days of I wish I, I did. Wouldn't that be nice? And that would be enough, actually. You know, I, I, these are things that... I don't think that we spend enough time in our lives appreciating those things as we're roaring towards the living. We're roaring and ripping and trying and achieving and grasping and grasping and grasping. And can we just, can we just settle down for a second? You know, and there, there's this great song by The National, who, you know, a band that really talks to me, you know, because they're so mordant and sad all the time. But there's this line <laughs> where he says, uh, you know, a, a song called Conversation 16. He says, you're the only thing I ever want anymore. I live on coffee and flowers. I try not to wonder what the weather will be. I figured out what we're missing. I'm telling you miserable things when you're asleep. You, you know, there's there's this this character that he's created, you know, uh, Matt Berninger from that band, where he's like, look, I, uh, I, I, I wanted the Hollywood summer. I wanted the Silver City. I wanted these, these fancy parties in our backyard. I wanted all of these things. And really, at the end of all of that, you know, you're the only thing I ever wanted. Anymore. That's it. I miss you i miss you and that's it and um that's that's we spend all our lives looking for someone or something and then we spend the rest of our lives ignoring them and, and so here's inherent advice right it's like look there's all this stuff and he's running all over the place and you know poor hong chow who i adore in this movie you know there's all this stuff that's happening right? <laughs> and then at the very, very end of it the grace note the truly graceful moment is when no matter what the future holds for them as they're walk, driving down this uncertain highway you have this moment. You have this moment where Catherine Watterson's on your arm. Okay. Enough. There's worse there's worse places to be. 
worse oh, places man. to be than that. There are. I've been there. Oh, God. You know, uh, most episodes, I just say goodbye. I ask you to tell people where they can find your stuff online. I really wish you were here to give me a hug right now, Walter. <laughs> I, 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 could, I could use a hug at the end of it. You know, yeah, well, we, we, you know. I'm really fun at parties, Travis. <laughs> 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 oh, bless your heart. You know, this has been, it's appropriately, a very dense episode. Appropriately, since we're talking about people who live lives of unusually high density, like the Fenways. But, you know, I, the things that you've said today, this is exactly, exactly, exactly why I wanted to talk to you about inherent vice. Uh, this is this is the kind of this is the kind of insight and the kind of approach and the the doggedness, the thematic doggedness that that is in all of your writing, which includes for anyone listening, a book on the great Walter Hill, that will be coming soon. And I. I, I, I'm telling everyone sight unseen to get your hands on that when that becomes available. But that I knew you would bring that level of clarity and insight to to not only this scene, but to to this film in general. And as as a the self-proclaimed most obsessed person on planet Earth with inherent vice, I can say that you have done the thing that I hope for in absolutely every episode with every single person I talked to about this film, which is, as I was, we were talking about this a little bit before the episode began, it's allowed me to see Inherent Vice with different eyes than my own. It's allowed me to see it with a different perspective than my own. And I think that that is, as we were talking earlier, that's the kind of the magical thing about films, especially films like this, which is the more people you talk to, not just see the film over and over and over and over and over again, like it's the Shawshank Redemption on TNT, not, not knocking it, it's a great movie, but mm-hmm. the when you communicate with other people and when you share a film with other people and you hear what they have to say, it just opens you up to so much more experience. It's just so much more capability of experience. And now I get to go and watch this film that I adore, that I'm obsessed with, that I love. And there's all these facets to it now that I get to enjoy that I didn't enjoy before because I hadn't had this talk with you before. And since we're being, since we're both being a little pretentious this uh, this evening, I, I just have to say thank you for that because you have you've opened the film up in a way that it was closed to me before, and that's that's magic. That's absolute magic. And and aside from aside from driving down a foggy a foggy lane on PCH with Catherine Waterston on on your arm, what's better than magic? There's nothing better than that. Well, I appreciate having me. I'm glad that it wasn't a, um, a disaster on your part. So thanks for Walter. Uh, enough. That. Now I'm mad. We had a nice <laughs> enough. You you stop this. You're yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And you know it. Well, with yeah. that said, I do want you to tell people where they can find your work. Um, I, my 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 home and my heart is at FilmFreakCentral.net. Uh, with my great editor, Bill Chambers. We've been partners in crime for the last 27 years, and uh, he published over 2 million, I think, of my words over that period of time. And uh, I'm very sorry, Bill, but thank you for that. And uh, please find me there, filmfreakcentral.net. If you do a general Google search for me, you'll find a lot of other places I've written, and you'll find a few pe- few websites, I think, dedicated to hating me. So you can oh, wow. do that as well. Yeah, it's, it's a good time. I don't know. I don't you know. give me names. I'm going to beat them up. I'm not going to allow make, that to stand. You know, Travis, I make people quite angry. I don't know. But anyway, 
Well, you um, made me very happy. You made <laughs> well, me very happy. It bounces it out. And 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 in and you know in in a in a sign of true respect, I am actually going to steal one of your lines that you that you used earlier tonight, cruising towards oblivion. I am going to thank you for coming on tonight. Thank you for talking to me about this movie. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please join me next time in which we will cruise towards oblivion with a very special guest and Miss Japonica Finway. Maybe there's no return to Eden or to Gordita Beach or to the idolized America that never really was. Maybe what Doc learns is that's okay. Maybe remembering that place and doing something good, even one decent thing with the sweetness of that memory. Maybe that's enough. Maybe that's all anyone can ever do. Will we ever know for sure? Will Doc? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.